feel next to mine I don't want you to worry, baby I know we can make everything alright When the lights are low And it's time to go It's when I need Your love so bad You treat yourself, are you? It's just nice that I can do that. <laughs> it is very nice that you can do that. There's no function in my life. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story takes place during WW2. Mm, the big one. Yeah. For now. Ooh. Mm. That's chilling. When you learn about World War II as an English school child, the focus is inevitably on the European theatre. The story is told in terms of Dunkirk, the Battle of Britain and D-Day. With a possible nod to the Eastern Front and Hitler's overreach leading to hundreds of thousands of Germans freezing to death before the sheer weight of Soviet numbers began forcing them backwards. So that's pretty much World War II when you're at school. Right. If the Pacific Theatre is mentioned at all, it's probably in reference to Pearl Harbour as a convenient plot device to explain America abandoning their long-term policy of isolationism. So it's the Americans didn't want to get involved, and then, as far as it's taught in British schools, apropos of nothing, the Japanese just started bombing ships with their planes. And America joined the war. Right. However, there is an argument to say that World War II actually started in the Pacific and that it started in 1937 rather than 1939. Mm. You see? You see? Do I, you see? I see. <laughs> at, the start of the ni- really, no. <laughs> at the start of the 1930s, Japan had a problem. Although nearly a third larger than the UK, Japan was still you know, relatively a small island nation with limited natural resources. And by the 1930s, it was struggling to compete in manufacturing with its rather larger neighbour, China, which was at least 25 times bigger and had natural resources like you wouldn't believe. It's brimming yeah. with coal. and with put a shovel in the ground iron. without digging up a gem. Yeah, it's just, you know. Oh, is that lithium? <laughs> wow. Mm. How useful. It tastes like lithium. <laughs> <laughs> The Chinese advantage in terms of both resources and cheap labour contributed to an economic stagnation in Japan that was made super worse by the Great Depression, which kicked off on Wall Street in 1929. Mm. So what they were building in Japan was high-end, sort of high-engineered stuff. Oh, so Everything they make is beautiful. Mm, but 
all my gardening tools are Japanese steel. Mm, but it, it costs to have that quality. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I bought some shears, mm. Dalek shears. I used them once and they got holes, like dents in them and mm. the things. And then it's a, I sent them back, spent double the price. But you can see how after the Great Depression, if it's a case of, well, I need something to do this job and I can either buy the Chinese version, mm-hmm. which is mass produced and cheap, or I can buy the Japanese version, which is better built. Buy, buy cheap, buy twice. Yeah, but after a depression, sometimes there's not an option. It's buy cheap or don't buy, isn't it? Yeah. Or goodbye. Yeah, or goodbye if it's food. <laughs> yeah. Buy cheap, buy expensive, or goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Those are your three options with food. But taking a page from the British playbook, the Japanese decided it would be a good idea to simply claim a bit of China that was full of mineral deposits and other good stuff. Yeah. What is not going to get on with that? (laughs) It's going up against China. How is their army and stuff? Because it's pre-social. Yeah. It's not good at this point. It's on the border, isn't it? Is it communist? Not yet. Not yet. This is is China still with an emperor. Mm. Um, And it's not a very good emperor. We'll get into it. But there there were reasons that the Japanese with the very martial culture um, felt that they probably could just claim that a bit of China was theirs. Yeah. All they needed, you know, because they need they need the uh, fig leaf of respectability in this. They need an excuse to take. These the, are the false place. flag events. This is we are about to talk about an actual so, so false flag like event. Lusitania. That's why. That's, oh, that was the ship that was sank um, to get America into Vietnam. Right. So it was the, the Vietnamese attacked a uh, an American ship. Right. So, yeah, giving us that excuse so we can say, well, by the terms of our treaty... Yeah, you've broken it now. We're allowed we to do to this war, now. But they yeah. just sink it themselves. And... So the Japanese were looking for a convenient excuse. They settled on a terrorist attack on a Japanese-owned railway line in Manchuria, mm. in northeast China. Of course, the terrorist was actually a member of the Japanese army called Samori Kawamoto. You were lucky when that name came up, weren't you? Mm who used so little dynamite in this terrorist attack that the track that he blew up was not actually damaged, like, at all. Right. Like, literally, a train went over it a few minutes after the terrorist attack took place. He just threw a banger. Yeah. He... It was just a banger. <laughs> Pretty much. He was like, maybe one stick of dynamite a good 40 foot from the track was let off and... A few stones were... See, if they'd actually the... used a Chinese terrorist, it would have worked. They invented fireworks. <laughs> well... That's it... how little minerals they, they had in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> they they didn't even need to turn uh, a, a Chinese sort of citizen to, to the Japanese thing because it was it was enough of an excuse for them as far as they were concerned. Yeah. Well, why don't just say it happened? Mm. If it's so little, and there's, you know, there's no proof that it actually went off. You've just got a few people that heard the explosion. Mm. There's no damage to the track. It could have been a car backfire. Why not just, instead of doing it, just say it's happened? But, I mean, it's one of those things. Maybe they were actually wanting to do a bit more damage and this guy just totally misread the situation. But they were poised. They Loud basi- bang, yeah? They basically had a, an army ready to go and they were like, this is going to be the 
the thing that lets us just march through and take Manchuria. So no matter what happens on that day, we're going for it. And when it happened and it was like, pfft, like shit, okay, well, we've still got to follow through with the plan. Because if a massive army suddenly just sort of walks away, people are going to wonder what it was doing there. Are the British looking at them going, no, you just walk in, like, like, <laughs> like Hong Kong. No, you just take it. You don't need a reason. You yeah, want yeah. you want the thing. You're overcomplicating yeah. this entire process. But it's good to note that like um, the weight of public opinion mm. has grown with you know mass media and stuff. So so they want to be seen as the as righteous in mm. there. Yeah, you, you, so you can claim that you're the victim because what they basically said was was pre pre, pre to that you wouldn't have had to do that. You just go and yeah, take go the and thing because you're the you know we're super powerful. We're going to take this thing. So Japanese train line has been bombed. And they said, right, well, the only way to make our train line in Manchuria safe is to take control of the entirety of Manchuria, which led to even more frequent skirmishes between Japanese and Chinese forces, uh, as the Japanese kept insisting that they were just there to protect their interests. And the Chinese kept saying, well, why are you opening mines? Why why are you loading cargo ships full of things and taking it away if you're just protecting your interests? And eventually it all spilled over into the Second Sino-Japanese War on July 7th, 1937. Which you're claiming to be the start of World War II. That's what I'm saying could be considered the start of World War II. The Japanese began advancing down the eastern coast, taking Beijing and Shanghai in quick succession. Really? Yep. Leaving the shell-shocked Chinese, who were somehow completely unprepared for a war with Japan, despite the six-year build-up seriously concerned that they would quickly find themselves cut off from the sea. So basically just just taking a thin slither of coastline to try and cut them off from all the things that you get via sea traffic. So all of the supplies going in, all of the trade going out. It's funny that Russia's doing the same right now. Yeah. It's trying to cut off. taking all the seaports. We're trying to. Mm. And the reason this was able to happen is because although there was an emperor who was supposed to be over everything he wasn't particularly strong he wasn't particularly a good leader and basically all the different um sort of divisions of the army had set themselves up just basically like independent just city states yeah, yeah. The, there was like basically war bands and it all worked when there was no outside pressure because they all kind of kept each other in check and the emperor could kind of go see see it's all working you know i, I mean i'm not sure i could tell any of them to do anything but at the moment, we're still a country. Yeah, and then at the assume, moment, they're not attacking me. As soon as there was this outside force, he's like, my army's to me. They all went. Well, all the ones who weren't, you know, on the coast were going, well... Where was Gondor when the West Fold yeah, fell? Why do I need to get involved in that? <laughs> you know, if anything, it's it's taking out some of my enemies. So, phew. And I'm sure the Japanese don't want it all. They'll be happy with just, just the coast. They, just they'll, all, they'll, yeah, all never the come trade links. Yeah, they probably would just be happy with all the trade. Well, to ensure that at least one trade route with the outside world remained open, the Chinese looked to their western border with British-controlled Burma. Ooh, it's George Orwell. He wrote a book, Burmese Days. Did he? Yeah, Ah. I think he went to war. No, he he was a police, we can cut this out, but I think he was a a military police. Oh, right, yeah. It was it was part Burma. of the military system. Well, we did so. we had you know military police over in British controlled Burma. Burma's not there anymore. It's Myanmar. Is that Myanmar? Yep. 
the Burmese had literally just been granted separate status from the British-controlled India. Uh, this meant that they would remain under British control, but would not benefit from some of the reforms that were being granted to the Indians. So... Shit. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> you're independent, and are we going to get all of that? No. No. You're on the old deal. It's a bit brexit Yeah. It? You're on the old deal now, mate. Sorry. I mean, if you'd have asked for independence like six months later, yep, you'd have got the same, but you jumped the gun, Burma. That's what you did. And now you're going to have to pay the price. The British decided that they didn't want a militant Japan right up on the borders of their empire, and they agreed to plan to build a road that would connect China with Burma so that supplies could be sent to support the Chinese resistance. The Burma road was going to be built through harsh, mountainous terrain. So naturally... Practically no heavy equipment was used at all in its construction. Instead, nearly a quarter of a million peasants from China and Burma carved mm. the route out of rock practically by hand. Yeah. How many died, Joe? Oh, lots. Yeah. Because it was 717 miles of road, which were completed within a year. That's unbelievable. It is, isn't it? Fucking hell. It, and that's how you build the pyramid. Yeah, you just throw people at it. Mm-hmm. Whenever anyone's like, oh, well, you know, they must have had all of these. No, if you throw people at something, if you have an inexhaustible amount of people that you don't care about, you can do amazing things. Yeah. Yeah, so it opened in 1938 with a lot of knackered peasants, I imagine still lying in the berms and verges around it. (sighs) Well, when they die, you just build them into the road, don't you? (laughs) Extra. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be no, funny. Probably. Yeah. Well, they definitely wouldn't have been taken back to the village of origin to be given a no, respectful just, burial. Yeah, just buried into the Yeah, the it's what he would have wanted. Yeah. Yeah, he's forever part of this construction project. He was, let's face it, probably forced to... It's not even like a, a lifelong uh, pursuit that you can be like, he'd always been a road... No, he was a farmer f- till he was 58. <laughs> and then they plucked him out. Well, we need nice, men. At gunpoint. Uh, and he said six months do you want a new career no (laughs) this gun says you do (laughs) follow the gun (laughs) good old gunny (laughs) the persuader um so yeah like i was saying yeah if you throw it was the equivalent of the population of york that they threw at this thing yeah so if you imagine everyone from york and the surrounding areas being put onto coaches taken to a mountain range and going right you can come back when there is a road. They're just given a crude picture. Yeah, just yeah. a squiggle. It's just they literally just squiggled on a map and went, "Do that." And it says, "You are here, <laughs> and you need to get to there." <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but they finished it just in time as well, because by November 1939, following the Battle of South Gungji, China was finally cut off from all naval support. So the Japanese managed to do it. They managed to take the entire coast. Oh my god. I did not know any of this. Because we don't learn it. We don't learn about the Pacific theatre. It's just Europe. Yeah, we learn Europe, Europe, Europe. Maybe a bit of North Africa because, you know, hoo-hoo, Rommel, cheeky desert fox. The Japanese tried to use negotiation to convince the British to close the Burma Road. And in July 1940, the British, fine, noble, upstanding people that we are, we did agree to close the road. But didn't do it anyway. Uh, we reversed it three months later. Because yeah. everyone's like, but aren't China your ally? Oh, I suppose. But now we're getting involved, aren't we? 
I don't want to be involved. God damn it. This annoyed the Japanese. This U-turn by the British. Uh, And they quickly reasoned that the best way to ensure that the road stayed closed was to invade Burma itself. So just carry on. It seems to be working. Yeah, yeah. The offensive was launched in January 1942, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So the Japanese are all in now. They're like, well, we've picked our side. It's total war. But they've been at war for three years. Yeah. You know, they've picked their buddies. They're like, we're going down with Italy. We're going down So it was, with... they were just advancing till they hit a point where there was great enough resistance. Yeah. For people to get, other countries to get involved. It seemed that Burma way. Burma was that point. Yeah. Burma was that wall. Well, it wasn't so much of a wall as we'll find out. The Japanese advance was practically unchecked. What? At least in part because the new Prime Minister of Burma called, and this is this is his name, you saw, yeah. uh, had been passing lots of information to the Japanese since November of the previous year for a promise that he could remain in power when they actually invaded. I see, he just wants to be the puppet. Yeah, he's Please like... Please let me be I'm a puppet. You saw... Yeah. He's great. He's a great puppet leader. He he can he can add a veneer of respectability to any totalitarian sort of situation that you want to install. Christ. It's great. And they managed to take the capital of Rangoon, uh, which was abandoned by Allied forces on March seventh, nineteen forty-two. The cost to Japanese forces was minimal, though eighty thousand Burmese and Indians died of starvation as over half a million people tried to flee westwards towards British-controlled India. So when you say, oh, they were going to hit a wall in Burma, Nothing happened. it was kind of an open door, really. For the European allies, it was quickly decided that the Pacific Front was the lowest priority, with the European and North African campaigns taking up the majority of resources. The only option was a retreat to the Indian border, where the allies could hopefully regroup. The retreat was so disorganised that around 100,000 Chinese troops were just kind of carried westwards with them. Uh, they would become known as the X Division. Right. What's the X for? I don't know. There was No, there was an X, Y and a Z Division. Right. Um, but the, the ones that just kind of ended up in India. Like, we saw you go. We just thought you might need some help. Yeah. We thought you had a plan. We were waiting for us to turn around and counterattack, but then we just didn't. And now, now we're in India, so that's fine. With almost full control of Burma established, the Japanese began using the Burma Road as a way of sending armoured divisions directly into the heart of eastern China. So it had gone from being a help to a bit of a hindrance. In like two years. Yeah. If the British were hoping to quickly launch a counter-offensive from India, they were to be very sadly mistaken. You see, British rule in India was going about as well as ever at that time. Uh, And with even more exploitation than usual in order to support the war effort, Indians all over the country were not happy. Because we'd always done, well, we take resources from India and we ship them over to England and then we just keep doing that. And the people who've made all the money from that process are all English. So we're essentially not paying you for the resources we're taking. We're just sucking. You're just a parasite. Yeah, we're just a parasite. And that's bad in normal times but when it's like well everyone's got to give a little bit more now because there's a war on don't you know it just got to be too much um they were especially annoyed as their all india congress which was a concession made by the british to try and show an increase in political engagement with the indian people was not consulted at all before the viceroy of india declared that india had joined world war Two on the british side 
So they were like, oh, that's not very good. Oh, also, what? Why's our name there? Why are we listed with the Allies? What's going on? Although the British super promised that they would look to implement full Indian independence... Have they got an army? Have they got a good army? Uh, there's, a, there's a standing army in India, yeah. But they're the Indian soldiers? Indian soldiers generally... Trained under, up by British. Yeah. So is it a case of just throwing men at it again? Well... Because they're not going to be equipped well. No, they weren't, they weren't equipped badly. They were. All right. We're, we're quite good at that. I suppose it's for our ends, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, we can find the money and we can find the resources if it's something we want. It's yeah, just yeah. if it's something you want. Yeah. Oh. Can I have bread? <laughs> no. Here's no. a gun, though. <laughs> Go over there and shoot that person. For reasons. If you wouldn't mind. One of the reasons, bread. So, yeah, the the British, they realised this was a bit of an overreach. And they said, look, as soon as World War II's done, as soon as we've protected democracy, and you can see how great we are at democracy, we will look to give you full independence. But can we just... Just get through this war. Help us win it. Some of you will die, but then those that don't, they can have independence. That yeah. sound good to you? Uh, and many of the Indian politicians, they'd reached the limit and just assumed it was a British lie. They're like, mm, no, that's not going to happen, though, is it? Yeah. The August movement, or Quit India movement, called for an immediate withdrawal of British rule and was launched by Mahatma Gandhi on August 8th, 1942. Yeah. Shit, I, I never put it together that he's... he's- calling for independence during World War Two. Mm. When did they get? 1950, was it? Uh, yeah, it was after World War Two. So we yeah. did actually... Although that was more because we couldn't afford to continue to run the empire rather than because we wanted Empathy. to give it up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, naturally, most of the democratically elected Indian politicians were promptly arrested for supporting the motion and protests across the country were brutally suppressed by British forces. That's which, what we need, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of reduced the number of men available and willing to launch a counter-offensive. Because if you're looking in your own country and your politicians are being arrested and people are being beaten up, and then the same people doing that are going, but you need to help us fight for democracy. Yeah. So, do we? Yeah. We're fighting. (laughs) There was also the slight wrinkle of another massive famine in Bengal in 1943, which is estimated to have killed 3 million, or if you prefer, 1 20th of the population of that area. And that, again, was because we just stripped resources out of the country. (laughs) We said this is a light-hearted one. No, I said bring some light energy because, Jesus, it's dark. I thought because it's the light story. Oh, no, no. Jack your levity. I I need the levity to counteract this horrific... (laughs) No, I I haven't got it, Joe. (laughs) Oh, God. One twentieth of people died. Make a joke, Uh, but make it sensitive. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um... (laughs) Bengal. Bengal tiger. I bet the tigers had a lot to eat. Tony the tiger. They're great. <laughs> Ugh. No, there's there's no joke to be... No, just make jokes, but not maybe about that. Stop giving me notes. Okay. Things were so bad that many advocates for Indian independence were considering supporting the Japanese, who, to be fair, didn't have a 300-year reputation for exploiting and lying to them. Mm. So you can understand, like, well, these guys seem to be very efficient. And we've never had beef with them, so... Is it is it built into the consciousness of India presently, mm. this history? It's definitely known. But, it, you know, yeah. how, how felt is it? Um, 
your Indian joke. Could you tell me your views? I, I don't know. I, I imagine that... Is it suppressed? <clears throat> is it like a suppressed history? I think it's coming more to light that people are, are starting to talk about it more. And when it comes to um, the British making suggestions um, and the Western powers generally making suggestions, you're seeing Indian politicians more and more saying, actually, no, we're going to do what's right for us. You can't, you know, you can't continue to tell us what we should be doing for our own best interest. We're beyond that now. So I think it has been changing and they, as a sort of political force, are realising that actually they're a big country with a big population with, you know, increasingly sort of industrialised and that they could be like China in terms if of they, having that. If they governed right. Yeah. If you know. they wish to become China, mm. which seems mental. But... I mean, that's just speculation. I, I, you do sort of notice that there is a lot more sort of um, dismissing English and American points and just saying, well, we're going to do what's right for us, thank you. Yeah. We're not just going to follow you. We tried that. Look where it got us. Yeah, so they, they were seriously considering joining the Japanese. Um, the Indian National Army was formed as early as 1941 and was used as an espionage network to try and disrupt British plans and to encourage defections with a promise of immediate independence once the British Raj was defeated by the Japanese. So it's quite a tempting offer the Japanese were making for them. Because I think as well the Japanese were like, we have a limited fighting force. We are a smallish island. We're quite stretched, yeah. occupying all these, these if Chinese... We- well, I think the end game probably was if we can take uh, China, we can have Burma as a lovely bonus and then support the Indians to get rid of the British and make them an independent country that's happy with us. We've got this massive buffer between us and, Europe you know, and- all of those powers then and we can sort of consolidate and have a, you know, the islands and all of the Chinese mainland where all the resources are. Are they thinking perfect. about Russia at all at this point? Uh, I know there's no like hard border, but you know, well, there's no border at all between Japan and anywhere because it's an yeah. island. But um, it's it's not that far north of China. No, and no. it would be a hard border if they've got China. But the at this point, I keep saying hard border. I mean, that's Brexit yeah, yeah. talk land border. Yeah, I think at this point Russia still had the non-aggression pact with Hitler, so that would be kind of well we're. Japanese were part of the Axis powers, so we're not. We don't need to worry about them. They're not part of this at the moment. Right. Keep and if an we eye can, on them. yeah, if we can consolidate what we've got, I, I, jobs are good, and you know, they they've got enough that they could expand for hundreds of years and still be doing fine with with what they've taken. I d- I don't know how greedy they would have been. I guess is what I'm saying. So all in all, with all of these things going on it was going to take the British a while to get to a position where they could think about retaking Burma. You know, they kind of had to sort out all of these other situations and then circle back around to the Burma thing. However, even with this level of mismanagement, in a country with a population of over 336 million, the British were eventually able to scrape together a combined force of over 1 million troops to push back against the Japanese, which was less than half of the size of this newly formed uh, British force. Also, the Japanese were beginning to face supply issues uh, as World War II continued to drag on into 1944. Right. So they were set up for a kind of a quick shock and awe, a bit like the Germans. The well, they're of... trying to hold back the Americans as well. Mm. Well, that, that didn't help. Let's no. put it that way. With a million men at their disposal, the British heroically 
allowed the Chinese X Division and an American unit called Marill's Marauders to take the lead in the first counteroffensive in 1943. <laughs> so they made everybody wait. Yeah, until X Division. Yeah, until they still got disorientated. Like you're fighting for your homes, go! But we're not from Burma, go! <laughs> yeah. First Burma, and then the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Unless we get bored. It actually seemed to take the Japanese attempting an invasion of India itself before the British Raj was stung into action. And following the repulsion of this Japanese invasion in June of 1944, the combined Allied forces began a slow and inexorable grind through Burma to retake the country. So, yeah... The Japanese, it was a kind of Hail Mary kind of situation where it's like, if we can help with the disruption to get the uh, independent India army to rise up, we could still win this. But it didn't happen. And the English just started, the British just started pushing backwards slowly, cajoling their men at all times. Please, we promise we'll make you independent. Come on. They, They can't do it, can they? They promised you that they'd, they'd liberate you and look at them. We're shooting them. Yeah. Now, you can either be the person with the gun or you can be the person receiving the gun. It's up to you. Just stop following the crowd. Eh? <laughs> oh, we're going this way now. Okay. This offensive to retake Burma would take from November 1944 to September 1945 and was heralded as a great victory for the British under General William Slim, who, up until the start of World War II, had been writing novels under the pen name of Anthony Mills. Okay. What was his novels about? Uh, was I, it smut? I don't know. He was um, sort of like a reserve officer and he had a lot of free time. So he was sort of like, he was semi-retired essentially. He was like, well, I, they don't ask me to do anything, so I'm just going to amuse myself writing little books. And apparently he made a little bit of money at it as well. Good for him. However, based on the wider state of affairs in the Pacific Theatre, it could be argued that the victory was pretty much inevitable. So I don't think that it was William Slim's amazing um, leadership. It was the fact that he had double the amount of troops at his disposal as the army he was fighting. Yeah. And pretty much... A monkey could have done it. Yeah, it just so happened that that, that monkey this day was novels. William Slim. Yeah, <laughs> He'd been bashing away at that typewriter. Yeah. But that's not to say that no one in the British army came out of the conflict with some honour. At the very start of World War II, in November 1939, a young man called Umrao Singh was celebrating his 19th birthday by joining the Indian British army, as you do. Umrao had been born in Palra, a little village about 50 miles north of Delhi in the Punjab region of India, and was a Hindu. He had been working on his family's small hold farm and was showing talent as a farmer when he decided to enlist. He he wasn't against the British rule. He was a patriot uh, and he... He's Hindu. Mm, right? I suppose I suppose your belief doesn't affect... Well, there were... If you want to go... Yeah, we had Hindus yeah. and Muslims in the British army because one of the things he said about the, uh, uh, the Sepoy rebellion um, was that we managed to piss them both off because uh, the um, gunpowder for the muskets that they were using, it was something to do with the fact that they made some of the things out of cowhide, which pissed off the um, Hindus, and the the sort of greased um, packets that they had the gunpowder in, they were greased with pig fat. Right. So to do it, you had to bite it and rip it off and pour it in. So it pissed off the Muslims. Right. 
that they had in their army. So it's like, all right, you have two major sort of political, um, uh, religious groups in this country that you're managing. That's how and you, plastic you, was invented. Yeah, you found a way to annoy both of them. <laughs> well done. So yeah, he was showing talent as a farmer, decided to enlist. Following basic training, it turned out that he was particularly good with big guns, with artillery pieces. That's what he... He he had sh- showed a natural affinity for range, you know, finding range and... I think maybe he was really strong and could just lift them. Oh, he's very strong as well, but not strong enough to lift an artillery piece. He's, they're big guns. They're very big guns. Oh. Uh, he was assigned to the Royal Regiment of Indian Artillery and initially sent to North Africa to help defend Egypt from the Italians. Fucking hell. So all of this... We're, you know, they're coming for you next, India. How do you keep track of all this? You know, as a politician... You you have teams of people. No, I understand, but just as this information's coming in, it's like, we're surrounded by all sides, <laughs> by multiple different armies, all all with their own hopes and yeah. plans, and you've got to keep track of them and trying to figure out what's, what's real intel and what's false propaganda and... <laughs> Where the next threat's going to come from? Who's going to push? Who's and going to try and consolidate? It's all coming in by bloody letters Tele- and telegrams and yeah. just men running <laughs> yeah. with information for you. It wasn't easy. I must find Jeremy. <laughs> but it's the idea of you sort of join the army and like, yes, you're going to help to keep India free from the Japanese menace. Anyway, get on that boat. You're going to Egypt. Why? There are Italians there. What? What are they? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And this is helping India? Yes, in a very roundabout way. Yes. It's helping India. If okay. a little helps. <laughs> so, Umrao, even though he was in foreign climes, very sandy areas, uh, he proved to be loyal, methodical in his work, and very calm under pressure. He was promoted to sergeant in 1942, based on exemplary reports from his commanding officers. This allowed him to be in charge of his very own big gun, which Umrao took as the greatest of honours. Unfortunately, the fighting in North Africa became heavily focused on tank battles, and as a result, Umrao was getting very few chances to fire his gun, which made him sad. Why? Because they're just too far away? Yeah. What's happening? Well, it it was in North Africa, it ended up being tank divisions fighting tank divisions, so they could move a bit more rapidly than people on foot. So he he didn't have time to get his gun into position and then they were all charging over to another else. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh no. You know, he wasn't pulling the gun himself. He had horse to do that, but still. That's horse, not horse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I realise I sort of misspoke there. Yeah. <laughs> Horses. Horses, yeah. But he may have been excited then, having not fired his gun in ages, to be told that he was going to be redeployed back in India on the border with Burma in 1943 to await the eventual counteroffensive to retake the country. So, finally, yes, he is going to be defending yeah. the homeland. He's yeah, going a to nice be doing holiday in Egypt. Yeah, saw the pyramids. Yeah. Blew bits off them. Saw the Sphinx. Did they get attacked? Uh, I believe there are some bullet holes in them, but I don't think it ever got that far. I don't think they got that close to Cairo. Right. I'd have to check. Go on. Not now. Oh, we'll do it after the story. Yeah. Although I, I have a list of things that I've said in episodes I'll check. I yeah, you never do. No. It just ends. And you, you listen back to when you're editing it and you just, you don't hear any of it. You're just trying to make it all streamlined. Yeah, I never know what the stories are about. I listen to them back after a year. That's my, 
I'm, I'm, I'm re-listening a year back and I'm going, Jesus, did we... Who's That's that? interesting. Who? Wow. It's lovely. The increased amount of artillery helped repel the attempted invasion of Manipur and the Naga Hills by the Japanese. And this attack, this attempt to invade India, it literally had the operation name Operation You Go. <laughs> really? Which I love. Yeah. And as part of the 14th Army, Umrao Singh helped to chase the Japanese forces back as far as the Chindwin River, meaning that some of Burma have finally been retaken. I mean, at certain points, this river is less than seven miles from the Indian border, but again's again. Yeah. It's seven miles they didn't have yeah. a few days ago, and they've got it now. That's how you take a country, Joe. Step by step, river yeah. by river. It probably is river by river, isn't mm. it? Well, yeah, I mean... the fronts, you know, it's geographical where fronts... You'd, you'd imagine, I mean, that, that sort of section between the Ribble and the Loon, you know, the sort of filed coast, mm-hmm. that's a nice invadable section of the country. And then you get to the next one, you go, right, okay, we're going up and then we're taking Morecambe Bay around to Barrow. And Just then, bite-sized chunks. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. That's how I'd do it. If, if I were invading Britain from the West... Don't know why I'd be doing that. I started yeah. out on the Isle of Man. I, I mustered my forces on the Isle of Man, yeah. and then we went straight across. Yeah. Took Preston. Yeah, <laughs> that's it, lads. With Preston down, the rest is sure to fall. What do you mean? No one cares on those. <laughs> what do you mean? The glad. <laughs> oh god. So yeah. <coughs> More significantly than the seven miles, though, approximately 60,000 hardened Japanese soldiers have been killed for less than 3,000 casualties on the Allied side. Determined not to lose the initiative, the Allies continue to press forwards. In December, Umrao and his gun crew found themselves in the Kaladam Valley in South Burma. They were part of the 33rd Mountain Battery, and they were part of an advanced section seeking to drive the Japanese out of the coastal region of Arkan. None of this means anything to you. No, not a thing. No, they were in. They were near the south coast of Burma. I, I, I understand what you're saying, mm. but I, I've never heard these places before or mm. was aware of this. They history. were doing well. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, on the night of the fifteenth of December, nineteen forty-four, Umrao saw a ghost. He was possibly a bit too far advanced, even for an advanced section. He'd taken the name too literally. They'd gone too far. He was supposed to be supporting a regiment of Ghanaian infantry. Because, of course, we had people from Ghana fighting in Burma. God, Why wouldn't we? diverse, arm, you know, army. It really was. I mean, when, even though we're at war, the co- cooperation? Cooperation or coercion. I mean, this was our empire. Yeah, so, yeah. You will do this for us, won't you? Yeah. What do you mean, No. I've sort of seen something nice in it, but you're right. Mm. So they were supposed to be supporting a regiment of Ghanaian infantry. However, the position that Umrao chose for his gun, it was within range of the Japanese mortars. And without warning, he suddenly found the ground around him being peppered with shells for an hour and a half. Just constant shelling. They're terrible, aren't they? Umrao and most of the other men in the detachment actually survived the shelling. But as the smoke began to clear they could see that at least two companies of Japanese infantry, which is somewhere in the region of 250 to 300 men, Mm. were advancing on their position to mop up the survivors. Which all of them survived. (laughs) Yeah, but they're still grossly outnumbered, you know. And do they have, like, um, do they have any other weapons? Uh, Yeah, they have some some other guns. Right, right. 
Now, apparently, men in artillery divisions consider their guns to be akin to the colours or regimental flag of an infantry division, with a similar sense that to lose the gun to an enemy was a terrible disgrace. It's like so losing that was a the, man. Well, it's like losing the, the regimental colours. So if somebody else got your flag, that was considered a massive yeah, um, right. morale. Dishonor. Yeah, it was a terrible thing to have happen. But they felt similar with the gun, and that was what they were going to defend. Well, there's the so last. much powers in that gun, isn't it? Mm. They well, just yeah. take that and start using it against you. Yeah, they just just going to turn this around. They're all trained. <laughs> <laughs> now That's he's it. facing the other way. It takes thirty Brilliant. seconds. Yeah. Umrau appeared to be of this mentality that the gun means more than my own life. As upon seeing the Japanese soldiers making ground, he quickly lined his men up and prepared them to defend the gun to the last. During the first wave... Would you destroy it if you know you're going to get... Oh, well, there's no way that they didn't have anything that they could use to destroy the gun. It wasn't like they had um, explosives that they could rig up to blow it up. You'd stop pooping down the barrel, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh. Quick, they're coming! They're going to take it! Could you poo well, in that situation? We're going to make it unusable. <laughs> what are you saying? You've got stage that fright. That little hole where you put the shells in. Yeah. This is full of poops. During the first wave... Umrao had his men concentrate their rifle fire on the densest areas of Japanese, rather than trying to pick off individuals. He also insisted that they conserve ammunition and wait for the em- wait for the enemy to be close enough to guarantee a hit. So he was literally doing the hold, hold, yeah. wait for it, fire. Yeah, all stupid ones die. Mm. Where you know it. If someone hadn't been taking charge, people would have just been taking pot shots. You know, there'd been no cohesion to it. This strategy did help his men to fend off the first attack. However, it also meant that more than one Japanese soldier had gotten close enough to lob a grenade or two. The subsequent explosions wounded Umrao twice. It also meant that there were a few less men ready to defend a second wave of Japanese attackers. Luckily... For the injured Umrao, this was the point at which he remembered he had a Bren gun lying around. Bren gun? Machine gun? It, essentially, it's an early machine gun, yes. It could accurately fire at least four times what a Lee Enfield rifle could. You could actually fire up to 500 rounds in a minute with this thing. Jesus. But that would heat the barrel up to the point where you well, couldn't... It just melts. Yeah, you couldn't yeah, yeah. effectively aim it. <laughs> it would still be firing, but it might be firing anywhere. So it's... Yeah. You know, you have to do it in these little bursts. So he had a Bren gun, that's good. You would have thought he'd have thought of that. No, no, no. He, he, you know, well, shit, that really powerful rifle I've got. Yeah. You know how your mind goes. You're like, gubbins. I had this here the entire <laughs> yeah. time. That just about made up for the losses in personnel, and the second wave was also forced back. Unfortunately, by this point, everyone was either dead or wounded to the point that they couldn't fight, except for Umrao. Of course, he's still standing. He yeah. was the one with the brain gun. And two other guys. Who were behind him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. So there's three of them. Also, they were now running low on ammunition. Because brain guns, they, they fire a lot. Thirsty girls. Luckily for the now desperate Umrao, this was the point at which he remembered that they had a box of grenades lying around. They're so well stocked, Gu- aren't they? Gubbins. Yeah. It's like, we don't have any more bullets. Unless there's some bullets in this box. <laughs> Lights up. Yeah. Wow. I thought it was just a box of straw, but there's grenades under the straw. <laughs> Two those to feed the horses. Yeah. 
he and his two remaining men began throwing these towards the Japanese troops, who probably were not expecting it, given that they'd been attacking for around an hour by this point and hadn't seen a single grenade used against them yeah, in that yeah. time. <laughs> it's like, what the hell? But they're all dead. <laughs> Why are they throwing grenades now? Have you seen these little like, rocks coming over there? Uh, don't worry they're only throwing rocks <laughs> oh dear god it's a bait and switch it's a bait and switch whenever a Japanese soldier got too close and they got within about five metres at times Umrao and his men had to use up more of their dwindling ammunition however they did manage to fight off a third attack without losing their gun but the third assault had cost Umrao 66% of his remaining forces he's the last one standing <laughs> yep he was the only person in a position to hold a weapon. Not that any of his weapons had any ammunition remaining. God. Even worse, as he looked out towards the Japanese, he could see that, in spite of the heavy losses him and his men had inflicted, they were getting ready for another attack. You know what they say, fourth time's the charm. My God, and he's going to do it. Injured, exhausted, and what, knowing... What revelation is he about to have? He realised he had a surface-to-air missile. Yeah. Now, injured absolutely knackered he's gonna have to call on the sleeping division he he knew it was the end did Umrao Singh so he picked up a gun bearer he's he's getting fired out of his own cannon (laughs) no he did pick up the the thing it's a heavy iron rod used to help move the gun so essentially as you're trying to re-aim it you Mm. you use that for the torque so basically he's just got a big metal rod in his hands now probably leaning on it as he waits for the Japanese advance He shouted for any of his men who were able to stand to give one last effort and then reportedly ran forward to meet the enemy. My God. He knocked down a further three Japanese soldiers with his big old lump of metal before he was overwhelmed. Around six hours later, in the pre-dawn glow of the 16th of December 1944, Allied forces retook the position. Umrao Singh was found with ten dead Japanese soldiers around him and several deep wounds all over his body still clutching his big lump of metal. So who's... Oh, because there's still some soldiers that survived the battle. No, they they were an advance force, so... Who's reporting that this happened? If all well, the soldiers are dead, he's dead. Where's this story come from? I never said he was dead. He was alive. He's alive? He was alive. <laughs> he reported this story. Oh, my God. He was found, despite the big, deep wounds, to be alive. So we're taking <clears throat> this... Act of pure heroism mm. from the lone survivor. We are, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and he got a purple heart for it. Well, no, he's not American. Oh, yeah. He got a, um, um, what are they called? We'll get to it. Thingy cross. Yeah. Why did it go all high? <laughs> Amazingly, the gun he had fought so hard to protect was back in service later the same day. On the British side. Don't worry, he hasn't like the Japanese have taken it away. (laughs) He's looking through the field. Oh no, she's over there. They can't aim it. (laughs) Because he's got got the steel rod, he won't. Umrao, though, he needed a bit longer to recover than his gun did. And sadly, this meant that he missed the awesomely named Operation Dracula that led to the recapture of Rangoon. Wow. Yeah. Within a year, though, Umrao was back in action. Now promoted to the rank of Major... He was able to take some time off from his duties in October 1945 so that he could visit London. Specifically, he had been asked to visit Buckingham Palace on the 15th, if you wouldn't mind, in order to receive the Victoria Cross from George VI. 
He was the only soldier from an artillery division to receive the honour during World War II, and one of only 40 Indian soldiers to ever receive the award. Umrah retired from the British Army in 1946. However, the very next year, he had joined the newly formed Indian Army, following the British finally granting independence. Umrah Singh served his country for the next 23 years, before retiring for a second time, and returning to his family's two-acre small holding in Polra in 1970. For 25 years, he lived the quiet life of a subsistence farmer, until in 1995, he received an invite to the 50th anniversary of VE Day in London, England. With no savings, Umrao needed support from other Indian servicemen to make the trip, and when he got to the door of the VIP section, the security tried to turn him away as his name was not on the list. So he got all the way there. He got his rod out. (laughs) (laughs) He's carried with him faithfully since that day, just in case. No, luckily, Brigadier Tom Longland recognised the Victoria Cross Umrah was wearing and made sure that he was admitted. He's like, is your name on the list? He's just pointing at his Victoria Cross going, is this not enough? (laughs) Don't know what that is, mate. It was a big deal at one point. (laughs) Well, I've never heard of it. But your security at the Victoria... What? How does this work? I killed 40 Japanese soldiers with a stick. Yeah, yeah sure of course you did, did Grandad. He's like, that's the first time someone's denied it. And he's like, ooh. Okay, fine, I didn't. I'm a fraud. I've been rumbled. <laughs> I hid in the straw box. <laughs> it was during these celebrations <laughs> that he finally was let into that Umrao met the then Prime Minister, John Major. Perhaps a bit annoyed that he'd almost been turned away, Umrao challenged the Prime Minister on why his pension as a Victoria Cross recipient had not gone up since 1960 leaving him with a mere £168 per year and living in abject poverty to the point that people tried to take advantage of his situation by offering to buy his medal. Yeah, well, he just kept it. So what they wanted was they wanted a lovely little... Well, you, you'll come in, Prime Minister, and you'll just be able to shake the hands of all these... Heroes. Heroes from all over the Commonwealth uh, to show that we are, you know, a benevolent leader of this group of nations and yeah. a very pissed off Umrah wielding his stick was like, why are you not giving me any money? Yeah. Why am I having to live in the dirt? You told me you'd look after me. You made Did promises. Change? The pension was subsequently increased nearly tenfold to £1,300 a year. So yeah, it, it did change. still a bit shit in 95, isn't it? But mm. It was damn sight better than what he was getting though. Mm. Slightly more gratifying. Then he sells his medal. He's like, I don't need you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Got as much as I can out of you. Slightly more gratifying, though, was the incident that occurred when Umrah was leaving the event. While waiting for a gap in traffic so that he could cross the road... He saw a a Japanese man. (laughs) Waiting for a taxi. (laughs) A random car stopped, and a man in a suit got out and approached him, saying, Sir, may I have the privilege of shaking hands with the Victoria Cross winner? The man just so happened to be the Deputy Prime Minister at the time, Michael Heseltine, who insisted on continuing to hold up London traffic in the middle of Westminster in rush hour until Umrah was safely across the road. So this is the Deputy Prime Minister of the country stood with his arms out, yeah, <laughs> preventing yeah. traffic so that this elderly Indian man can cross the road. We've covered this before. Did we have we cover this in Dadabai? We did not cover it in Dadabai. You've told me that before. I, I may have told you that before, but... 
I've I've not covered it in we've not it's not canon yet. Oh, is it not? It's not it's not been part of the series until just now. Okay. Umrao Singh visited the UK once more in 2003 at the age of 82 for the dedication of the Victoria Cross and George Cross Memorial in Westminster Abbey. By this time, he was the last surviving Indian Victoria Cross recipient. Because obviously after independence, uh, they stopped being eligible to receive the Victoria Mm -hmm. Cross. He returned to his home in India, where he was diagnosed with prostate cancer in July of 2005. Umrao Singh died in the Army Research Hospital in New Delhi on his 85th birthday on November 21st, 2005. He was cremated in his village with full military honours. And the source that actually got me into this story um, wasn't... source. It wasn't a book for once. I was searching for some World War II footage and I found on YouTube a collective called The Best Film Archives and they provide a ton of contemporaneous news footage from across the last hundred years. So it was all the Pathé newsreels of, you know... We're giving those Japs what for. Yeah, yeah. All of that kind of really questionable content now, but at the time. And this story came up in one of those. So I wanted to see if it was just propaganda. You know, like one guy, one British soldier fighting off dozens of people. And no, it turned out genuine story, genuine man. But yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit about the Pacific Theatre and we the story do a bit more of, of that, Umrao Singh, who... Just to educate me, mm. we should do a bit more of that. Okay, but well, I mean, much like the BBC, our remit is to inform, entertain, educate. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we do here. No taxpayers, though. No, no one's paid me any tax, <laughs> which is a shame. I mean, I'd, I I, wouldn't say no. We'll take that, take that little envelope as a payment for yeah. today. <laughs> oh, thank Yes. Well, so every, every time you come to record, you have to pay me for the education I'm providing <laughs> you with. God. I think so. Does that technically make me a history teacher? Do I have to declare this as income now? No. Okay. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.